When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedirico and Daniel Coca. Hello, welcome to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Seth Bradley. Seth is a real estate entrepreneur and an expert at creating passive income while working as a highly paid and busy professional. He's closed billions of dollars in real estate transactions as a real estate attorney, investor, and broker. He is the managing partner of Law Capital Partners, a private equity firm focused on value-add real estate acquisitions and development. On the podcast, we talk about deal structuring and the importance of solid legal agreements and securities compliance for real estate investors, whether they are passive, GP, or syndicators. We cover all the different ways to build recession-resistant income, and Seth shares his experience as a franchise owner of two different franchises, one of which he launched two weeks before the onset of COVID. We also talk about a new asset type that Seth's looking at, RV parks, and how to position those for all economic conditions. And finally, we touch upon the importance of health and why making health a priority allows us to achieve all of our life, business, and wealth goals. This is a truly inspiring conversation full of interesting and interrelated topics that I know everyone will take away very much from this conversation. All right, Seth, it's great to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks guys for having me on. Yeah. I know that you and Daniel did uh, a recording on your podcast a little bit earlier this year. And so I know I want to spend a little bit of time talking about real estate structures. I think it's really important and actually really interesting in terms of like how we structure deals and why deal structures are important and for investors to understand the different types of deal structures. So they know what they're getting themselves into. And then I want to transition into some of the other stuff that you're doing with your investing and what you're seeing in this changing environment as we're, you know, we're catching up at the second quarter of, of 2022. So we're in the middle of, of quite a lot of economic uncertainty and we're all seeing a lot of shifts in investor preferences. So, so yeah, so just to get, to get started, you know, you have, you have a pretty like big experience as an attorney and in real estate, like what brought you specifically to that? And why did you stay in real estate? Yeah. I mean, when I started out as an attorney, you know, I, I got a really good job out of law school, started working at a big law firm. And I was kind of in a place where I just did transactional law. I knew I didn't want to do litigation. So I just started transactional, just kind of general corporate stuff. And then I started getting fed some real estate finance work. 
And I really just started gravitating towards that. So I started doing real estate finance, real estate dirt work, and then eventually into securities. I don't know if I can really pinpoint what that is. It's just always been attractive to me. You know, it's, it's money's always been attractive to me. It's always been like, well, you know, how do people really create real wealth and how do they, how do they build that? And if you track it back to the beginning of time, it's always who controls the land, like who owns the real estate. It, it's always been that way. And I feel like it always will be. So I think that's what initially attracted to me to it. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Did you, did I hear you right? Did you say dirt, dirt work? Dirt work. Yeah. <laughs> What's dirt work? It's, is that just like pushing papers? Is that it's like, a, it's, it's a slang term for real estate attorneys. So like kind of the, you know, you review and negotiate the PSAs, the title, the survey, the, okay. the real estate work, not necessarily the securities work where you're talking about raising funds and offering documents and things like that. Got it. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. So, okay. So again, so we, we did an episode um, with Zach Racinger. We both know in, in our, in our mastermind and we kind of dug into like, what does a real estate broker do? Like, what, what do these people like actually do like all day? And like, how do they participate in a real estate deal? And it reminds me of that a little bit because there's all these nuances and there's like all these, like a ton of check marks. And like, I know I don't, I don't do that. That's more in, in Daniel's, uh, Daniel's side of, of the business and like making sure that, uh, contracts are buttoned up, that like everything is like super, super buttoned up and that, um, and I think a lot of people don't know that. And, and I do like to point it out because there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. Right. And you're, you see that too. Yeah. And I think when you kind of have a, you're zoomed out a little bit further, you don't necessarily have that, you know, in-depth perspective, like, Hey, what, what's, who's doing the, the dirt work, the attorney, the real estate attorney work as compared to the securities work, which is, you know, talking about raising funds and putting together your subscription agreements and, and documents and, and those sorts of things. And if you're not an attorney or you're not familiar with that, and you're kind of jumping in from square one, like a lot of folks, you know, have done the last few years, they don't, they don't even really understand that that those differences and they don't really understand that you, you need either an attorney that can do both or two separate attorneys, which is typically how it's done. Right. And one, one thing I'll, I'll throw in there too, because I, I know people often talk about the importance of having these like ironclad agreements that you can rely on and like, that's great. And you should absolutely have that. But really step one is making sure you're trusting the person that you're investing with. Because if you have the greatest contract in the history of mankind. If your partner tries to steal from you, if they do something shady, if they do something sketchy, you've already lost. Like you're going to spend three, four, five years in litigation. If it even makes sense, most of the time, you're just going to walk away and take your, your loss of principle. And so entirely agree. Lawyers need jobs. They need to, to push this paper around. It's, an, it's important. But step one is really making sure uh, you have trust and faith in the groups you're working with. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, a lot of it comes down to, you know, that gut feeling you get when you're working with somebody, you're thinking about working with somebody, whether that's a business partner, or whether that's investing with, you know, a syndicator, what's the gut feeling that you get? Do you, do you have like good vibes from this person or not? Because if you start feeling kind of funny about it, it's probably for a good reason. You should probably trust your instincts and walk away. There'll be another deal and another person to partner with another deal to invest in. Yeah. I love that statement. I'm all about that. <laughs> I'm all about like intuition and trusting it, at least from the perspective to start with of like, if there's something wrong, let me at least dig in a little bit deeper because it could be like, you know, it could be like, you might have like some fears or bad experiences, but like, if you really do, like, if you feel it instinctively, then, then you probably will want to like, want to look in, like look into it. And, you know, like based on too, like what you and what you and Daniel are saying, then I guess like my question is, 
when people get started and they, cause there's a lot of people that have gotten into real estate investing and syndication, either on the GP side as syndicators and like as investors, but I want to talk about the syndicators and the GP side, like do how many of them know and how long does it take them if they don't know how important it is to have those contracts in place? Like how many people just start and just like, oh, I'm going to go raise some capital. I'm going to try this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sort of like cobble that thing together and run into problems. Or like, do, do people really understand that like my first stop is- well, I think, you know, it's across the board. I think a lot of folks that have a business background already, you know, they maybe it's not real estate, but maybe they have their own business or, you know, maybe they've worked in corporate, in the corporate world and they've dealt with businesses. They understand the importance of attorneys and getting that contract into place and, and all those sorts of things. But then folks that are just kind of, you know, maybe they come from a different place, maybe a regular job. I don't know what a regular job is, but you know, something that's not necessarily, you know, where you have attorneys and, and corporate things going on all the time. They're, you know, they just try to get the deal done. They just try to put things together and, and the attorney is just kind of a, a side piece and they don't really think about it. You know, for instance, I mean, I see people on social media making mistakes all the time. You know, they're raising capital. You know, they have no idea about securities laws. They don't even, a lot of people don't even know they exist or if they do know they exist, they don't care. And mm. they just, you know, they post all over social media with, you know, a, a deal that you're not allowed to do that with. And it's insane how, how, and I try to point that out to, to folks that I know I'll kind of message them on the side. Hey, you should probably take this down and then kind of give them a little bit of a lesson, but it happens all the time because we have so many people that are brand new to this space and they haven't really done their due diligence and their education, at least from a legal perspective. Yeah. I, it's, it's hard with social media too, because there's such an impetus to like share everything. I'm going to, I'm so excited about this thing. I'm going to put it out there and, and they don't know, but you're right. It's a, it's a really fine line. That's at 506B, 506C that crowdfunding originally like brought in back in, back in 2012, 2013. But yeah, I, I hope to like for the, the investors here, like listening, like when you are approached by, or you see advertising because social media is, is advertising to, to really make sure that when, like if you're interested in that opportunity or that operator to find out what kind of an offering it is, because there is some risk to the investor, right? If, if the SEC were to come down on a firm. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of the people that are just starting, like it's their first deal or two and they're raising capital or they're, you know, a general partner on the deal, you know, they want to do a 506B deal because they want to raise from their friends and family who may not be accredited. So they mm -hmm. always start with a 506B deal. And that's the one where you're not allowed to solicit or advertise and they're out there doing it as, mm -hmm. as opposed to the more seasoned folks, you know, they, they tend to do the 506C deals and you can post that post stuff uh, all day and you're not quite as at risk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I wanted to, to actually shift into maybe a little bit of an evolution of what, of what you're doing, having, you know, laid that foundation of, of contracts and securities and, and real estate. One of the things that I'm, I'm really curious to learn from you is that you do franchising, like you own your own businesses. They may not be passive right now, but in this world, especially right now, this, this time period where the sort of macro economic environment that we're in is really unique. I think that's an understatement. And I've seen, I've seen and heard of talking to a lot of people shifting a little bit. They might be worried about real estate or they just want to supplement their real estate with cash flowing businesses. So what was the impetus for you to, to start in businesses and then specifically franchising? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you always do want it to be as passive as possible, but I will say that 
you know, most franchises, they might try to sell them to you as passive, but most of them are not. I mean, some of them can be more passive than others, but one franchise that I'm doing is called Burn Bootcamp. So it's a, it's a boutique fitness franchise and it's, it's certainly not passive, but it is cash flowing. I mean, if you look at kind of what you have to put in versus what you get out on an annual basis, I mean, it, you know, it beats any of these real estate deals, but again, it's active. I mean, you have to pay, you know, we have 20 employees or so at every one of our locations that we have to deal with and, you know, hire and fire all the time. Luckily, my wife is the one that, that runs those gyms on, on the day-to-day basis. So I don't have to worry about it, but you know, that's considered, at least from my perspective, I consider that totally active income. That's, that's, you know, you're working, you know, putting a lot of time in to get a lot of cash back out. And then you want to try to convert that active income into passive income. So then you take that active income that you're creating and you put it into syndications and put it into passive investments that don't take a lot of your time up. And eventually those things kind of equalize themselves. So I I think that's a good idea to diversify. A lot of folks that uh, might be listening to this podcast are only in real estate, which is great. I mean, if you're going to pick one winner, I'm picking real estate all day, every day, but I like to diversify a little bit. And, you know, second franchise right now, it's called All Dry. It's a water and mold remediation company. And really, I wanted to get into that again for the cash flow. I love the big upside on it. And second of all, you know, we may be coming into a recession soon. And this is a business that's recession resistant 100%. If you have a water or a mold problem, you have to get it taken care of no matter what. So I love that about the business. So if other parts of you know my investing falls off a little bit in a recession, I still have that that's going to be kind of carrying me through. Yeah. That's like a different way to think about portfolio composition or, or asset allocation. It's sort of like the old stock and bond model where like one kind of absorbs the other, even though real estate historically is uh, thought to be recession resistant. I think we could all probably make a case for some overvaluation in certain properties right now. And, you know, rent growth and is that affordable and how does that impact NOI, et cetera, et cetera. I know that we talk about this a lot when we're seeing some of the valuations out there, especially in multifamily and the sustainability of, um, of maybe what's presented to us anyways, or that we're seeing out there with, with NOI and, and cap rates and now interest rates going up. So that's a long way of saying that like real estate tendentially has been positioned as recession resistant, but it's not a bad idea to to maybe have a, like some diversification there too. Yeah, for sure. And especially in multifamily nowadays, it's, it's getting very compressed, right? Your cap rates are coming down. The deals are getting tighter and tighter. Even, you know, we're, you know, the, everything's just getting really compressed. So you're seeing a lot of operators kind of diversify outside of multifamily. They're still in real estate, but maybe they go to mobile home parks or RV parks, or even back into to office and retail and places like that, where you can get, you're kind of chasing that yield because right now it, it's just getting lower and lower with more competition. And then with a, with a looming recession, you know, those, those small margins can, can get you in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen that too. Even like from a market perspective, I feel like it, you even, even as like soon as it's, it's really not, it's very recent where Midwest or other markets were maybe a much higher cap rates. And now they seem to be pretty much the same. Like there's not a big difference between cap rate in Ohio and a cap rate in certain parts of California in certain instances. And so there's almost like it's equalization of cap rates, which is really stunning to, to observe. Do you think that, that that's been part of the, the great migration, the, the recession, you know, millennials work from home, you know, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a combination of all those things. I mean, people, COVID just kind of the pandemic really just put everything in, on fast forward as far as working from home and working from where you want to and, and not wanting to be in the office and, you know, getting space, you know, not wanting to be, you know, living in San Diego where I live, where nobody has any space or New York and everybody's moving out of those places where they can have more space and have a yard. And they're able to do that because they can work from home. So all those things kind of, they were on the way anyways, but you know, the pandemic really just accelerated it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because you you brought this up again, I remember in in the pandemic when it was first starting there that you were sharing, I believe it was on LinkedIn for your burn bootcamp, you had to build a whole outside structure. What, what happened? Like, how did you deal with COVID as a business owner doing something that's the gym, you know, bootcamp, which is one of like very hard hit, like how was that experience for you? And you're pretty resilient about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think the more that you can deal with those sorts of things and roll with the punches, the better an entrepreneur you can be um, because you're always going to deal with the ups and downs as an entrepreneur. That's, that's kind of the thing. You get away from the W2 where you have your, your paycheck coming every two weeks. And then you go into an entrepreneurship where you're not getting paid every two weeks. You're getting, you know, you might not get paid at all and then you get paid a lot and then you get paid nothing. And, you know, things happen in your business and these things just come up all the time. And we definitely went through the ringer with our gym locations. We opened, we actually had our grand opening two weeks before the pandemic hit. And we had been trying to open for about a year and a half at that point, going space to space, negotiating leases, then falling through, things like that. We finally opened for two weeks and then we had to shut down completely. And then, you know, for the past, really up until you know, we're still battling it. I mean, even this January, you know, sales were pretty flat because we had that resurgence with COVID and, you know, January is the biggest month for gyms, but we had a flat January and we were like, you know, this, we were really concerned because we were hoping for a big month, but we've rebounded really well, but you know, we've had to go inside, outside, do at-home workouts. We built a tent outside. We brought in turf. We needed all these different things and you just have to stay flexible and keep your mind open and and do whatever it takes to, to succeed. I mean, it's just kind of a, something you had to do. And especially during the pandemic, it was, it was new territory for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely does not sound like passive. No. <laughs> passive investing. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember seeing pictures of you building the, the outside structure in, in the parking lot. What's your, what's your take on people kind of wanting to come back and, and like work out or did everyone, you know, I think there was a certain point where like the joke was like, you know, we're never going to wear pants again and we're only ever going <laughs> to use the Peloton or like the water rower that everybody just bought. But like, it seems like that's not really the case. People want a different experience. Yeah, it's definitely not the case. I mean, you've seen it with uh, Peloton and all those places, all, all the at-home type of workouts, they just haven't sustained after the pandemic's kind of fizzled out a little bit. Everybody wants to be at the gym. Everybody wants that social aspect, that community asset the aspect, and also the accountability. I mean, when you're working out beside somebody you know, or even a stranger, you work out a lot harder. You don't stop. Whereas if you're at home and you're working out in front of a, a TV and it's just you, you're tired. You take a break. I mean, you get a much better workout when you're in person. I think everybody realizes that. And that's why you've seen everybody kind of flock back to the gym. And I think that's always going to be the case because it's just, you, you don't get that, that accountability aspect by, by working out at home. Mm-hmm. And if, if someone needs a Peloton, I have one. <laughs> I'm happy to, to give it away. Especially nice. now that you're not getting any sleep with baby. Yeah. Well, I, 
I live in a, in a very extreme COVID bubble in this present moment in time, you know, given we have a newborn. And so like the gym is just like, it's like a dream to me. You know, I dream yeah. about kids and I have to go to the gym. You'll I get actually, there again. Yeah, you'll get there. I actually just bought a Peloton. I got it off uh, Craigslist for like 800 bucks. It was basically brand new. So <laughs> I was going to, I was going to say like, like I'm always like, I, I love deals. I'm like, if I can like wait for like a good deal, it's just like, everything's better. If it's, if it's a deal, <laughs> you can find them everywhere. Yeah. Dana, give you your, give you one for free. There you go. <laughs> well, listen, I wanted to, to ask you about, cause you, you mentioned this too, like in terms of like the different, like the different businesses, I think it's, I think it's really incredible that you're you're, you're going into like yet another franchise. How is, before I jump into, cause I want to talk about RV parks, but before I jump into that, how is a franchise different or how does it work relative to starting your own business? Sure. Yeah. And I actually meant to touch on that from before, but you know, even though the businesses I'm, I'm in are active, they're a lot, take a lot less work because they're franchises than starting from scratch. I mean, I, I don't know what the failure rates are, but it, it's something crazy. Like 90% of businesses fail in the first few years compared to franchises. It's, it's much, much lower because they already have everything. They call it a business in a box. Mm. I mean, they already have, you know, their relationships with the vendors. They already have kind of, they, they do national marketing for you. They already have kind of all these things laid out that you'd have to figure out on your own, which would cost you money and time to figure out ready for you. So, and, and usually they assign someone to you to kind of be your business coach, to help you open, to help you after you open, to, to just ensure that you have the best possibility of not failing. And I've seen that even though something, for instance, like all dry, it's actually a very simple business. I much rather prefer to pay them a little bit of money to give me all the systems and processes already in a box and ready to go. So I can just launch and focus on growing my business. Mm, interesting. So it's all of like, you get all of this back in and all of this support and some training too, right? You were just in a training to learn the ins and the outs of that specific business. Yeah. And if it's a mature franchise, the thing is everybody's encountered the same problems that you're about to encounter. So mm -hmm. if something comes up, literally there'll be an owner's forum, let's say on Facebook, like a Facebook group, or, you know, maybe they'll house their own. But if you have a problem that comes up and there's already a hundred or 200 or 300 franchises that are already open, somebody's already had that problem and they have a solution, whether that's, you know, a vendor or a, an employee situation or a form or a template, anything that any problem you come across, it's already been taken care of. You just need to figure out who to talk to and they're in the system already. So that's the great part compared to, you know, if you start a business from scratch, who do you ask? You know, you, maybe you have a business coach of your own that you hired or something, or you go to like a mastermind. I mean, you know, and that's not direct, that's not a direct answer. That's just somebody kind of giving you their opinion. Whereas if you have a franchise and you're sharing the same business with a hundred or 300 other people, they know the answer, the exact answer to your problem. Yeah. And do you get selected to be in a franchise or like, is there a, yeah, is there a selection process or like, like, is it competitive, I guess, is part of my question. Yeah, there is a vetting process for sure. I mean, you have to have certain liquidity and net worth to get into mm -hmm. them. The more right. mature that the franchise is, the, the higher those minimums are. I think Chick-fil-A might be like $3 million in net worth or something, for instance, yeah. whereas something that's new, it might only be like $100,000 in net worth. Like they just want to grow the franchise as quickly right. as possible. So, you know, there's there's definitely monetary considerations. But then on top of that, yes, they, they do interview you because they don't want you to open a business if you're not business savvy and then fail. And then that looks bad on them when they're trying to, you know, grow their franchise. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's a very symbiotic, it's a very symbiotic kind of business relationship. I'm so pure. I'm really curious to hear how, how this all turns out for you, especially for something that, like you said, is so recession, recession resistant as, as that service. Cause the, those are the kinds of businesses that are also often private equity type of businesses, right? Like the ones that nobody wants to talk about, like ice machines and yeah, yeah. things like, <laughs> like mold remediation. And, and yet they're, they're probably like pretty easy, like not easy, but like, mm, they're just down the line, like no ups and downs, like pretty, like pretty steady state, which is steady state cash flow, which is ultimately what a lot of people are looking for. Yeah. And those are the types of businesses you don't think about, right? Like you think about franchising, you think about owning a McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or maybe even yeah. a gym or something. Those are like really sexy, right? You're like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, that, that'd be really cool to own a Chick-fil-A or own a burn boot camp, But you know, nobody thinks about uh, owning a surf pro or an all dry, something like that, because it's not, you know, it's not that attractive. And you're like, oh, water and mold, like that's gross. Yeah. But there's so much money in that industry and there's always demand and it's recession resistant. There's, there's so many attractive things about it. So when you dive into the, especially when you dive into the numbers, mm-hmm. it just makes a lot of sense. And so from like a structure perspective, do they all, like the all franchises typically work the same where you like you pay some amount of money up front, like a lump sum, and then there's some like profit sharing or like, are, are they structured differently? All the ones that I've seen and from my knowledge, yeah, they're all structured about the same. You pay a franchise fee up front. So maybe for each territory that you buy, you pay a certain amount. It's usually 25 to a hundred thousand bucks. It can be really expensive. And that's really just to me, it, it's sunk costs. Cause you know, the only thing you get out of that is that's kind of your buy-in, right? That you're buying for the systems and everything. And then after that, they take a profit share that's usually like, I don't know, five to I've seen as high as eight, eight percent gross off the top. And that, and that's kind of your share or their or their share, I should, I should say. And then do you how active are you in this one? I get burn. I get burned. Yeah. I mean, and I know you're really passionate. I mean, I think something like burn, like it's because you want to, and you're passionate and you're like super athletic, always out there, like doing surfing and like interesting things, but something like this, how active are you? Or do you immediately hire people that run it? And it's a little bit more like private equity almost. Yeah. I mean, you can run it either way. It depends on how you want to do it. I personally am going to run it from kind of a managerial perspective at least for the first couple of months, just so I can learn the business. And then after that, I'm going to hire a general manager to kind of manage everybody else. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I anticipated being pretty passive pretty quickly. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Super interesting. Well, let's move on to yet another thing that you're, <laughs> that you're into. I love it. I'm like, I'm like, I love having lots of different things as well. Tell me about RV parks. I've, I was seeing that the past couple of years, like it was, it wasn't, it wasn't like intuitive, like, oh, I think RV parks are going to definitely like do really well, but how does that, how does that work for an investment perspective? Like, how do you value an RV park? How does it work? Like, is it going to be cyclical or is this a secular change? Yeah, it's interesting because they're harder, in my opinion, they're harder to value, they're harder to buy than uh, typical commercial real estate at, uh, assets because there's so many different ways to generate income. You know, they might have a store, they might have, you know, horse rentals, like, you know, they have all these different things, you know, might have uh, boat slip rentals, like there's all these different things that you can use to generate income. And if you 
YouTube search how to buy an RV park or, you know, how to value an RV park, you don't find very much. And what you might find are people lumping together mobile home parks and RV parks and, and kind of in the same thing. But if you just look at just RV parks, there's just not a lot of information out there. So I think it keeps competition down, at least for, for right now. I don't, I don't think that will last, but at least for right now, information is kind of hard to find. So I, I like it. I mean, I like being able to, to kind of take this mom pops business and, and see how you can kind of turn it around. And there's a lot of interesting ways that you can do that. A lot of the older parks that might be um, near water or near an attractive location, like even, even an Indian casino or something that's near it, um, you can turn that from a long-term park, let's say a month-to-month -month rental that, that looks more like a mobile home park mm -hmm. to a nightly rental and double or triple your income. It's almost taking like a long-term rental house and turning it into an Airbnb. It's, it's very similar. So that's one really great way you increase income. And the second one is a lot of times you buy these parks and they have extra land and it doesn't cost a lot more money to build extra RV lots, as opposed to, let's say you buy an apartment building and you're trying to build another building or add more units, really expensive for an RV park, not as expensive to add lots or you know, add glamping or things like that that just don't cost a lot of money and you can generate lots of revenue from it. Oh, that's so interesting. That is so interesting. You're doing that. And is that, are you doing that in California or are you doing that in other States, maybe with partners that are local and do you want to be local to do something like this? We're looking all over right now. We're under contract for a park in Texas. Obviously Texas is a great place to buy because you know, government's easy and flexible to deal with. We did look at a park in California because it was within driving distance of where I live. And I was like, oh, this is great. I can actually invest somewhere near me, which never happens. But again, we ran into all kinds of issues with the state, all kinds of issues with permitting. And we were just trying to put in some glamping tents and it was going to take like three years or something. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. So California, once again, comes through and makes it <laughs> super hard to invest and spend your money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I hear you. I hear you. It takes where I live. I live in Topanga and it can be years to get permits, especially if you have anything in, in coastal coastal commission area. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's impossible. They've actually limited the number of septic tanks that you can put in. So without a septic tank, like you can't build a house. And, and so like that, it's just like, you're right. It's really challenging. And it's good that you bring it up in case somebody was like, I'm going to go buy this RV park next to where I live. And then, <laughs> and then they can't actually do something with it because like the permitting piece is often also overlooked by maybe people starting out and they don't understand that like you actually can't do anything without a permit. Yeah. I mean, specifically the park we were looking at, we wanted to do some glamping tents, which would only cost, I don't know, like $5,000 a piece. And we're like, oh man, we can generate so much income from this. We can charge three or $400 a night. Wow. These things only cost like $5,000 to put in with a little bit more infrastructure. And then we went into, we met with the, met with the city and they were like, well, you got to do this. And we're like, well, how long do you think this could take if we push it through, stay in the same footprint, all this kind of stuff. They said minimum of three years because <gasps> just all these different things you had to do. We had to put in fire suppression for a glamping tent. Um, uh, it was just insane. The, the, the hoops you have to jump through here to do business. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Wow. So, okay. Oh, I, I would love to talk to you more about all this. It's like, I think that, do you think actually that people are living in RVs like permanently or like temporary oh, yeah. permanent, like a couple years and then they buy a house or what are, do you, what are, are there any trends around this? There are definitely people living in RV, <laughs> in RVs all over the place, especially in California. Well, I know that they live in our parking lot at burn boot camp. That's right. for sure. Yeah. They live on PCH down by the yeah. ocean too. Yeah. 
but yeah, I mean, a lot of the parks that we look at, they, they rent those spaces month to month, but they're there basically permanently. I mean, the RVs are, are semi-mobile depending on how long they've been yeah. there, but those, you know, some of those parks, they've basically just turned into mobile home parks. And that's one of the things you can look at. If, if the demand is there and you can turn that into a nightly or a weekly park, man, you can increase the, the income quite a bit. And I guess in thinking through a recession, especially if we get into something protracted, and I, I often wonder whether some of the vacation rental will get hit, especially the higher, the higher end, right? Discretionary spending might come down depending on who's being more impacted. So what do you think about that when it comes to this? Because I kind of think, well, if you can revert to that, then, then you have a different type of hedge already and you can flip back and forth between long-term and short-term rental. I'm imagining that is applicable here. That's exactly right. Just like you buy a single family rental home as a short-term rental, you got to think, well, what if I, what if, you know, the municipality comes back and says, I can't do short-term rentals. Well, make sure that you can still rent that as a long-term rental and it still kind of covers your costs. Similarly with RV parks. Yeah. If there's a huge recession and you know, there's the hospitality industry takes another hit, and you know these nightly RV parks aren't a thing anymore. Does this RV park still work as a monthly rental or a yearly rental? Um, and if it does, then you know you've really hedged your risks there because it, it turns into low income housing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a whole topic in and of itself. Right? The the need for more affordable and, and low income housing. I'm super curious to see how all these trends really play out play out over time. Before I let you go, so normally I ask all our guests like what wealth means to them. But before you answer that, because I know you're, you're very centered on your health. Can you talk a little bit about how and why you have that kind of a focus and what health means to you? And then relating that into wealth and and wealth building, because I feel like it it goes hand in hand with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, health is, is the most important thing, right? Like if you don't have health then all this other stuff that we're doing, it doesn't matter. Like we're, we're trying to build wealth. We're trying to buy real estate. We're trying to start these businesses, but if our health isn't there and, and we're not in a good place with that, then what, what do we have and why are we building it? I mean, that, that comes first. And I think a lot of people, when they get really busy, they forget about that. They stop working out. They start, you know, eating the wrong way and they let those things fall. And then before you know it, you know, they're busy building their businesses and buying this and that. And then 20 years ago goes by and they, you know, it, their health is in shambles and it's going to be more and more difficult for them to recover from that. So for me, it's, it's always the basis for everything because it, I just try to keep that perspective that that's always going to, you have to have your health before anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I can appreciate that. I went through a little bit of a health crisis about a year and a half ago and I feel like I'm uh, just now coming back to physically where I was two years ago. And I can appreciate like, how challenging it is to perform or just to, 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 to live, to be like normal, quote unquote. And I'm very, very grateful to, to kind of be back in like in really good health, but it was also very much a focus to make that the focus, especially when I did get sick. And, and then like, I was like, Hey, I need to focus on this first because this is foundational to everything else. And then like building that really, it took a long time to get, to get back here, but I can appreciate that. And I think it's a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, listeners out there don't need, you know, healthcare, like you had to to kind of recognize that, right? Like a lot of times people don't recognize it until they've had an issue. Once they've had the issue, they see it, but a lot of times they don't until then. 
Yeah. And I feel too, like, cause we somatize so much of the stress and the, like, and we don't even know like how much we can take on, especially if we have our high performers and tolerate stress really well. But then it's like, it's like the body's like hits a point where it's, it's like, you haven't been listening to me. So now I'm going to like full stop, I'm going <laughs> to full stop and make you and like make you rest. And yeah, nobody wants to go through that. And, and so, you know, it also shifted a little bit for me in terms of like, resting and, and, and being okay also with those kinds of boundaries and like, Hey, I'm only going to work until this. And now I have to take a rest and I have to take care of, of my body. But that, that becomes like, my body is now like a stakeholder in, you know, in my life. And it's like, it really is its own thing as, as far as I'm concerned. And I have to kind of treat it like that so that forget about it in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, you touched on a couple more things there too. I mean, mental health and, and rest. I mean, you have to have rest. I mean, a lot of people are like, Oh, I only sleep. It's like a bragging point. I only sleep four hours a night or something. It's like, well, that's not good. That's going to catch up with you. Even if you can function on four hours of sleep and a lot of coffee, that doesn't mean it's not good that it's good for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that we talked about that because I, I know like I'm is always so like inspired by, I'm not strong enough yet to do boot camp. I'm, I'm like really close. Like I'm really close to, to, to getting there again. Cause I am, I'm, I'm taking it, I'm taking it easy, but like there is the stress that that puts on the body is also a really, it's like the good stress to, to, you know, like that's a good stress, not the mental stress, but like the physical exertion, I feel like really has something important for our overall well being, so that we can actually perform mentally at, at, at like our top level, even as we get like older. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even folks that are just like, Oh, I don't have time to work out or, you know, doing those sorts of things. Like if you do work out, you'll perform better with the things that you're trying to focus on. If you're trying to focus on the work, well, you'll, you'll do better if you get some physical exertion in there. Yeah. Well, this probably explains why you're able to do so much. <laughs> you know, like all these businesses going on and you're like, and, and you have like your, your fitness and your health at, at the root of it. So if that doesn't inspire everybody, I really don't know, don't know what will. So, <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been just so much fun to learn about all, all of these different things. And I look forward to catching up with you over time and seeing how it all pans out and the RVs and the, and the, and the franchise franchises as well. So thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might've touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.